Our text for tonight is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Began studying the book of 1 Thessalonians a couple months ago simply because I came to the awareness that it was one of the books in the New Testament that I was least familiar with. So I began to study it and open and look at the message of Paul from 1 to 2 Thessalonians. It's really an incredible book. And I am um, privileged and excited to be able to open this first chapter with you guys tonight and look at Paul as he encourages a group of believers in Thessalonica. This book is really carrying a different tone with it than most of the other books in the New Testament. This is a... Um, a book that follows Paul's interaction with a church that he started in Thessalonica. The story is actually told to us in Acts chapter 17. You don't need to turn there. I can summarize it for you. What happens in Acts chapter 17 is Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey. And they're going city to city. And, and through a occurrence of events, they end up at the city of Thessalonica. And Paul begins in this city, he goes straight to the synagogue as was his custom and he begins to preach Jesus Christ to the Jews. And as Acts chapter 17 lays it out, it says that he was there for about three Sabbaths, two to three weeks probably. And it says, as the text lays it out, that, that it was incredible what took place. The people were saved. There were some Jews that believed. There were many Gentiles that believed. It even says that there were many political leading women that believed. And as the text plays out in Acts chapter 17, you get the feel that incredible, incredible things are happening in this city. And yet as Paul preached a gospel that he knew was offensive, it did indeed offend Specifically, the Jews were angered by the message that Paul preached. And as Acts chapter 17 tells the story, many of them formed a mob. And they gathered together and they started essentially what, what, what was like a riot in the middle of the city. And they began to go around, a large group of people go around looking for Paul to, to take him before the court. Because he, along with the others that he had converted, were claiming that there was another king. And they could use that against Paul in court. You say that Paul has claimed that there is another king than Caesar. And these people he has converted have made the same claim. They are guilty and must be punished. And Paul's danger was not restricted simply politically. Paul knew and the people around him knew that his very life was at stake. So as the story plays out, they're looking for Paul and they, they cannot find him. They find one of his converts named Jason, they bring Jason in. Jason testifies before the court. They make Jason pay essentially a, a bail for him to get out. While Paul is hidden by some of the other believers in Thessalonica. It says that some of the brethren brought Paul and said, Paul, you need to leave. This is dangerous for you. The spread of the gospel is more important than the time that, that you can spend here with us. Go, go, move on. And then it was move on through Acts chapter 17. Paul leaves. He goes to Berea and he preaches the gospel again at Berea. We don't hear much more from Thessalonica until the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we are told the rest of the story as it played out. 
Paul says, I had to leave. You, you told me that I needed to go. And I left and, and, and I continued to spread the gospel. But to be honest with you, I, I was really nervous. I was worried about what had happened to you, these men and women that I'd spent time with that had come to believe the gospel. There were great things happening. You believed and you were turning from sin, but then I was, I was snatched away from you. I had to leave and I don't, I don't know what happened. This wasn't a time where Paul could just send a text message and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Paul was in complete ignorance as to how this church was doing and what we realize Paul was wondering in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is that perhaps Satan had tempted them and they had forsaken what they had learned. We learned that the church was even facing persecution, that Paul's ministry was being hijacked by other Jews and by other political leaders and that the church at Thessalonica was in a difficult, difficult time. So Paul, Paul's nervous about this church. And so, though he desires to return to them, he cannot do it. He sends Timothy. And Timothy returns to Thessalonica and spends a little time with the Thessalonians to find out how they're doing. If they've progressed, if they've abandoned the faith, if Satan has tempted them, or if they have continued. Timothy spends time with them and then returns to Paul. And Timothy brings to Paul good news. Says the church at Thessalonica is both alive and well. In fact, they are growing and they are resisting persecution. And this, this church is incredible. And as you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we don't really have time to look at it tonight. But, but the message that Timothy brings back, Paul is just rejoicing. He's ecstatic that this church that he was pulled away from continued to thrive by the grace of God. And it's on that note that Paul receives that news that he pens the book of 1 Thessalonians. He's just heard they're alive and well. They're doing great. They, they may have a couple issues, but by and large, this church is thriving. There's no tone in this book like that of Galatians or Corinthians where he says, you, you fools, what has caused you to, to, to do this? Why, why are you not pursuing Christ the way you should? No, in fact, about the meanest thing that Paul says in all of 1 Thessalonians is excel still more. Keep going. Keep pursuing Christ as you have done so, so well. And so it's with that context and that mindset and those emotions that Paul has that we now enter into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's read this chapter together as Paul opens in his thanksgiving to this church. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Conviction. 
just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he died, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And what, what an encouraging chapter. Paul has nothing but good things to say to the church at Thessalonica. So we begin to travel through this chapter. It's, it's, it's an incredible just outline of Paul giving thanks for a group of believers who have come to Christ and are growing. He starts in verse 1. He gives kind of an introduction. Who's writing it? Who the target audience is? He says, grace and peace to you. That's formal introduction for Paul. Very typical. And then in verse 2, he gets right to it. And, and he says, I think is essentially the whole point of this first chapter. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now think about that sentence in light of Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Remember this relationship in Acts 17. Paul spent a grand total of two to three weeks with these people. These are not childhood friends of Paul's. Paul spent limited time. The only common bond that these two had was Christ. I mean, that's, that's the only thing that, bond, that bound Paul to the Thessalonians, was that he was the one who led them to Christ. There were no childhood memories. They're, they didn't sit down and talk about, hey, remember the time we threw the rocks at that guy's house? Like, there, what, there, was, no, there was nothing like that. It was only Christ. That's all that this relationship had in common. And Paul now down the road is saying, Thessalonians, I thank God for you always. I'm always thanking God for all of you. And I think of my prayer. And I wonder... If I had a relationship with a group of people like Paul had with the Thessalonians, simply surrounding Christ, could I say down the road, I'm, I'm thanking God always for all of you. I think of my prayer for, for us together as a body at, at this location, at Mission Row Bible Church. I think we have a lot to learn from how Paul prayed for other believers people he knew for just a couple of weeks. He's constantly praying for them. 
We can learn much from that. And Paul continues and he begins to outline how it is exactly that he prays. As he continues in verse 2, he he says, this is how I pray for you. First, making mention of you in our prayers. I'm mentioning you in my prayers. As I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm mentioning you. This is not just, God, pray for all the believers in the world. That's not what Paul's talking about. God, pray for all the missionaries. That's not what what Paul's talking about here. He said, I'm making mention of you in my prayer. And he continues in verse 3, constantly, again, continually, constantly, bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his presence, in the presence of our God and Father. So he says, I'm giving thanks to God for you. Two primary ways that he's doing this. He's mentioning them specifically in his prayer. But, but on top of that, he says, I'm just, I'm constantly thinking about you. I'm, I'm continually, constantly bearing in mind your work. It's, it's the word remember. I can't forget about you. I'm continually call, recalling you to my mind. I'm always thinking about you and the growth that I've seen in you. Mentioning them in their prayers. He's constantly thinking about them. And he's doing this, Paul says, always, continually. That's how much I care about you. Much to learn from his example of prayer. But Paul then continues in verse 4. And remember the first time I really dwelled on this verse. And this this floored me. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God... His choice of you. Paul's kind of giving the background here of of the reason that he can pray. the, the, The way that he is enabled to thank God for them. And he says, I'm thanking God for you. I'm mentioning you in my prayers. I'm constantly thinking about you because of this. I'm I'm knowing. I know that God chose you. And you think about that statement. The word, it's, it's, it's literally, the, it's, it's like the word elect. I know, I know that you are God's elect. I know that you were specifically chosen by God. And you, you think about that. And I'm thinking, if I'm Paul and I'm writing this, I don't think I would have said that. I think I would have left that out. Because the terminology that we tend to use is not certainty over someone's election. Certainty over whether or not someone was chosen by God. We often choose, I I use this all the time. I would call someone a professing believer, someone that would claim Christ, but, but we're not really sure. We can't know their heart. And while there is safety in that, and I think that there are times for that, Paul doesn't use that here. He says, I know, I know that you are chosen by God. And it begs the question, How could Paul know that? How how could he know that they were chosen by God? How can he be certain that those Thessalonians, sure he had seen some growth in them, they made a profession of faith, but Paul doesn't say, I think you're chosen by God. Paul says, I know, I'm knowing as I'm praying. I'm certain, that's the idea there. I have certainty in my mind that you are chosen by God. Paul, 
you really mean that? How could you know that they're chosen? And to that question, Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Because the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to be outlining the proof of that. He's going to be telling us how he knows that God chose them. He's going to be telling us how he can be certain about that fact. And he's going to outline, essentially what he's going to do is he's going to outline their testimony. What he's seen in them. And the fact that their testimony then supports the fact that he can know that they are saved. So this evening, what we are going to do as we travel through the rest of this chapter is we're going to look at six proofs that the gospel has taken root. Six proofs that the gospel has taken root. Because what Paul is going to say next, we'll look at at this next verse. Paul has said, I know that God chose you. And now, first, he's going to start to support that. He's going to say how he knows that God chose them. Look to verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, our gospel, it wasn't just words. This wasn't just what you're used to. This wasn't a message that bounced off the walls and then fell dead at your feet. This was not a typical message. Our gospel came to you, continue in verse 5, our gospel came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This was not just any message. And it didn't reap just any response. The message came with power. The message came with the Holy Spirit. And the message came with conviction. This is not words that fell dead at people's feet. These are words that worked miracles in people's lives. And because of the fact that Paul saw the very power of God, the very spirit of God, the very conviction of God working as a result of this gospel, he knew, he knew that they were called by God. But he doesn't stop. He's going to continue and he's going to start giving proofs of that statement. I saw the gospel work incredible things in you. So let me tell you how I know that the gospel worked incredible things in you. Let me tell you how I know that you are called by God. Six proofs that the gospel has taken root. Number one, an imitation of Christ in mature believers. An imitation of Christ in mature believers. As Paul describes this gospel and how it impacted the church at Thessalonica, he says these were not just words, but they came with power and conviction and the Holy Spirit. And the imagery that jumps to my mind instantly is the parable of the sower. When, when Christ says that there will be the sowing of seed and some will land on the rocky place, some will land on the side of the road, some will land amongst the weeds and the weeds will choke them out and on the rocks they will not have the roots to hold, but, but he says some will land in the good soil. And it will take root. 
and it will grow and it will produce fruit in its time. That, that illustration that Christ uses is much the picture of what Paul says happens to the Thessalonians. It wasn't words that fell dead at their feet. It took root among them and it produced fruit. And so the first way that he says, I know that that happened is an imitation of Christ and mature believers in their lives. Look to verse six. This is the beginning. Paul is just gonna bullet point. He says, first of all, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So as I'm expounding on what this looks like in your life, first and foremost, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became mimickers, copiers. That's the idea there. It's, it's the word from which we get our word mimic. You became mimickers of us and you became mimickers of Christ himself. Paul acknowledges that the first way that he knows that the gospel had taken root in their life was that they essentially became mimickers of Christ and of the mature believers in their lives. This is significant because individualism is, is highly prized in our culture. The, the idea to have to take on certain characteristics, whether it's clothing, whether it's abilities, whether it's the way we talk, the way we do what we do, whatever it is, the the Hope to be individual, to be your own person, to not conform to standards, but to do what you do, to be known for who you are. And Paul even acknowledges the value of that in the church. He acknowledges the value of gifts and abilities of believers in the church and how we are all going to differ in that way. But it's interesting to note here that what Paul saw as a fruit of salvation in their life, that what Paul saw as proof that the gospel had taken root in their life, was not their individuality, but their conformity to other believers. He says, as I see this playing out in your life, what I see is you no longer going your own way, but you're imitating us. See, we are, we are wired. We're wired to be imitators. That's how we work. I remember growing up and Spending lots of time with my dad and wanting to do things like my dad and dress like my dad and talk like my dad. And I loved the sport of basketball growing up. And every basketball lover's one of their favorite players would be Michael Jordan. I loved Michael Jordan. I loved watching his highlights. I was, he was nearing the end of his career when I was a child. I remember watching some of him play. But, but I learned that Michael Jordan had this thing. Every time he shot, his tongue hung out the side of his mouth. That was a unique characteristic to Michael Jordan. Now, your tongue hanging out the side of your mouth in no way improves your ability to play basketball. But let me tell you, I spent hours of my life trying to maintain my basketball ability with my tongue hanging out the side of my mouth to, to look like Michael Jordan, to, to, to have that appearance because he was someone that, that I idolized as a child, someone that I wanted to be like. And so I tried to take on his characteristics. We're wired to imitate in that way. You see something you like and you do that. You see clothes that you like and, and, and you want to have them. You want to take on that form. We're wired to be imitators. And it seems like the only thing that we aren't wired to mimic or imitate is God. And Paul points out, he says, this is why this is a fruit in your life because I see you imitating Christ. And that is unnatural. 
That doesn't come naturally in and of your own flesh. That only comes, you imitating Christ and you imitating us, the mature believers in your life, that is only the work of God in your life. So Paul says, I see you. And I see that the gospel is taking root in your life. Mimicking Christ, imitating Christ is clear through scripture. It's clearly a pattern that we are supposed to take on Christ's likeness. But it's interesting that the formal object of what they were imitating that Paul commended them on was not Christ, but themselves. Paul says, you're doing awesome because you imitated me. It's really interesting. Don't don't underestimate the importance and the role of having those mature believers in your life for you to imitate. Paul clearly saw that as valuable. Now certainly Christ must be first and foremost in our life. Christ is not absent from this statement. The Thessalonians were mimicking Christ. But but Paul commends them for more than that. He says you mimic Christ and you've mimicked what you've seen in us who shared the gospel in you. And so he thanks God for them. And he praises them. Because they were imitating Christ and the mature believers in their life. And Paul continues. In the rest of verse 6, Paul says, And you have received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The second proof that Paul uses that the gospel has taken root is a perseverance amidst persecution. A perseverance amidst persecution. Look again at what Paul says in verse 6. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of of the Holy Spirit. This church, make no mistake, was being persecuted, just like Paul when he came to Thessalonica. Soon after people were converted, angry mobs began to form, and Paul was immediately under the threat of persecution. Paul is able to leave. But the church at Thessalonica stays right in the thick of it. This church is being persecuted, possibly by the Jews that were not converted, possibly by the political leaders. As they were accused of claiming a king other than Caesar. They were going through difficult times. And what Paul says is that a proof of the fact that the gospel has taken root in your life. Is that you have persevered through that persecution. See this, what we learn is that this is actually tied to why Paul was so concerned for this church. Because they were under difficult trials. They were under oppression. They were under tribulation. But when Paul receives the news from Timothy that they have done well through that persecution, Paul is rejoicing and thanking God. Because if they persevered through persecution, Paul says, I I know that you're chosen by God. Now, persevering through persecution does not necessarily mean that one is right. But what it does show is one's heart. Many people who have been persecuted for a lie. There are many people who have been persecuted for what is wrong. What we do learn from the fact that people endure through persecution is that they are genuine. Persecution is indeed purifying for the church. Even important for the church. Throughout history, persecution and the church have gone hand in glove. They were, as Christ said, blessed are the persecuted. 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about that statement. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted. What is Christ saying? Christ is putting the idea of persecution in Christianity hand in hand. To follow Christ is to essentially sign up for persecution. And understand, in America, this, this time frame is the wide exception to the rule. Throughout history, persecution has accompanied following Christ. And that's not to say that there aren't certain forms of persecution and opposition in America, but largely... The commitment to follow Christ in America does not demand the level of person that you would have received throughout much of history. And make no mistake, go, go read the book of Revelation. The future is not bright. The church will be persecuted. But Paul doesn't, see, we, we tend to look at persecution very negatively. Paul doesn't do that. Paul looks at persecution as the litmus test for someone's legitimacy. He says, I see you. I'm thanking God that he called you, that he has chosen you because you persevered through opposition, through tribulation. You have continued. And not only have you just continued, but look at the end of verse six. You have continued, you've persevered with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You've persevered through tribulation with joy. Joy through trials, joy through persecution, joy through opposition, joy through tribulation. On Mission Road, we are well taught. We have been so well taught, especially recently in Romans 8, 28, in Romans chapter 5. Many of us are reading trusting God in our care groups. The idea of having joy in trusting the sovereignty of God in the midst of difficult circumstances. I hope that we are all well taught on that. It doesn't make it any easier. And Paul looks at it as, as, as a litmus test, as a purification. It says, I know, I know that God chose you. You've persevered through tribulation. You have received the word through tribulation. But he continues, he continues to our third point tonight. A maturity for others to follow. A maturity for others to follow. Let's read verses seven and eight. Let's start with verse 7. As he continues, you've persevered with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. As Paul is continuing to outline the proof of their salvation that he sees that gives him confidence that they're saved, he points out that they have matured to the point that they are now examples for others. The church at Thessalonica had become an example for other people to follow. They had grown. Their testimony had shown to be true. And other people were hearing that story and following their, tes- following their testimony. You look at the connection. It's really interesting. His first commendation of them was he said, you, you're following us. You're following Christ. You've persevered through difficult times. And now others are following you. You look at that relational connection that this church was impacted by Paul and they followed him, they mimicked him, and they persevered through difficult times and now they've become an example for others. It says that the word of your testimony has spread to Macedonia and Achaia. This is a significant, this is a large area. This is bigger than modern day Greece. 
sort of included Philippi, Berea, Sparta, Athens, Corinth. Those are just a few of the many cities that would have been in this area. There were a lot of churches that Paul himself would have been to that were represented in this realm of Macedonia and Achaia. And Paul says, your testimony has spread abroad in Macedonia and Achaia. They are hearing the story of what you have done. You have become an example of all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then in verse 8, he continues. He expounds on that. He says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. He he qualifies. He says, actually, it's gone beyond Macedonia and Achaia. This is spreading like wildfire. In other words, what he's saying is, you mimicked us. You followed us. You persevered. You received the word in the midst of opposition. Because you have done that, now your testimony is spreading like wildfire. And you are an example to other believers. They are hearing your story. And what we're going to learn in a second is that they are following in your footsteps. It's the power of the Thessalonians' testimony. It says your reputation of resisting persecution is going forth. Literally, he says in verse 8, it's, it's sounding forth. It's the idea of like, like almost like a modern day megaphone. Your, your message is sounding forth. And then you look at the end of verse 8 and think about the significance of this statement. So that we have no need to say anything. Think about that. Paul says your testimony has gone forth so aggressively that I don't even have to say anything. Literally, your testimony is preaching my message for me. Do you see that? Paul's saying, your, your message is going forth and it's going forth so aggressively, we have no need to say anything. You're preaching my message with your testimony. It's the power of the Thessalonians' testimony is that it is going out and it's providing an example for other churches to follow. It's It's incredible. Paul's floored by this. Paul's going city to city. And the cities are telling Paul what Paul did to the Thessalonians. And so he can say with confidence, I know that you are chosen by God. But again, he doesn't stop. He continues. He's going to give more proofs of the fact that God has chosen them. More proofs that the gospel has taken root in their life. In the rest of these, the next three that we're going to look at, Paul is kind of expounding on the message that went forth. He's telling them about their testimony that's going forth. All under the idea of Paul thanking God for what they've done. He says, your message has gone forth and let me tell you what they tell me about myself. Verse 9. He says what exactly they report. We have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us. What kind of a reception we had with you. And how you turned to God from idols. To serve a living and a true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. 
whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's three quick bullet points in here. The first one that we see there is that the next proof is a reception of other believers. The next proof is a reception of other believers. The first part of verse 9. As he's expounding on what message is going forth. He says, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. See what Paul's saying? He says, I'm going city to city and they're telling me how well the Thessalonians welcomed me. That they accepted me with my message. That they received me. And so Paul says, I, I see this as a proof that the gospel has taken root in you. That you are, you received these believers. You accepted them. You didn't, you didn't turn them away. You didn't get tired of them. But what Paul's going to outline later in the book is that you are, you're there and you're desiring that Paul returns to you. You want to see him more just like Paul wants to see you more. And there's this, there's this love. There's this hospitality even. There's this reception of other believers that Paul says, I'm going city to city and I'm hearing how well you received me. You wonder if Paul ever got tired of the story. Like Paul is going throughout Macedonia and Achaia and he keeps hearing this story. The Thessalonians, they received you. Literally, the word is, is welcomed. You, you, you were welcomed there. They, they opened their arms to you. And so the reception of other believers. He continues. Next point. A, a turning from idols. Number five. A turning from idols. Paul finds more proof that God has chosen them, that the gospel has taken root in their life because there was a turning from idols in their lives. Second half of verse nine. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. The Thessalonians, literally the word Paul uses is they turned. There was a flat out change that happened in the lives of the Thessalonians. There was repentance that took place in these people's lives. Paul says, I saw you and now I've heard the report of you that while you were serving idols, probably the Greek, Roman gods of that time, while you were serving those idols, you, you stopped doing that. You repented, you turned, you changed. You're, you're a new creature you have turned from idols. You've turned from serving the dead. And now you've, you've, you've made a wise choice. You are serving the true and the living God. And so still within this context, Paul is thanking God that these people turned from idols. That they turned from their former way and that they are now living a life that is glorifying to God. So turning from idols is a proof that the gospel has taken root in their life. But Paul continues. Look at the last one this morning. In, in, in the end of, I'm sorry, into, into verse 10, the end of this chapter, Paul says, and to wait for his son from heaven. The last thing that we see as a proof that the gospel has taken root is that these believers started waiting for the return of Christ. a really interesting proof of someone's salvation. 
Their expectations changed. The, what they were looking for changed. They were living their lives day to day. They were going about their daily business. But now, now that they have been made new, they're looking far ahead. These believers, they are waiters. They are anticipators. They are looking forward and anticipating the coming of Christ. Isn't that a really interesting change in the Thessalonians? And immediately, again, I look to myself as, as we need to with all of these characteristics and be asking questions. I, I look to myself and I say, is that me? That was an immediate response for the Thessalonians. That was in the space of two months. These people had gone from serving idols to when is Jesus coming back? This radical change that happened in these believers. And so because of these six points that, that we see tonight, as Paul just outlines this incredible testimony of incredible things that happened in these, these people's lives. Paul says, I'm thanking God for you. Day in and day out. Knowing that he chose you. Confident that you have been bought by Christ. I don't have any doubt in my mind because I've seen what the gospel did in your life. And the gospel is so powerful. There's this testimony of the Thessalonians, the testimony of all of scripture, the testimony of our own lives. The gospel is so powerful. It is powerful to change. And yet as we approach this text, there's several questions that just jump off the page at me. And I, and I wonder, I, I can't help but wonder as I've been reading through these books. If Paul were to be wondering about Mission Road Bible Church. And Paul says, wonder how that church is doing. I wonder if that church is growing. I want to know how they're doing. And Paul sends Timothy to, to us, to Mission Road. And Timothy spends a couple weeks with us, a couple Sunday mornings. He goes back to Paul and he tells Paul what he saw at Mission Road Bible Church. And Paul then writes us a letter. I wonder what it would say. And I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a genuine question, but, but it's just it's interesting to wonder, what would Paul write to us? Would Paul see us as a church like the Thessalonians, who, who's a very young church, but thriving church? Would he write to us and say, I'm thanking God for what you are doing daily, that your testimonies are spreading. And I'm, I'm going city to city, and, and they know what happened in your lives before I even have the opportunity to tell them, because your story is spreading like wildfire, because what God did in your lives is incredible. Paul sees us as a, as a strong church. There's no secret identity to a strong, to a Christ-like church, except that it is filled with Christ-like people. That, that you and I are pursuing Christ daily. That is what makes a Christ-like church. It's not solely your pastor. It's not solely your attendance. It's not solely the quality of your building. It's, it's not, that's not what makes a, a Christ-like church. So for us to fit this, this, this mold, if you will, of the Thessalonian church that was thriving and growing, what that, what that demands that we do 
is individually be asking these questions. Be asking, is, is this proof that the gospel has taken root in my life? Is that present? Don't misunderstand me. This, this is not, I don't think what Paul's doing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is giving a checklist for you and I to go down. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to communicate. This is a very specific example of what happened to a very specific church. But the question of would Paul see the fruit, the proof that the gospel had taken root in our lives is altogether legitimate and must be asked of ourselves. Be striving, fighting, clawing to have those characteristics, to have those qualities. It's really interesting to note that Paul left Thessalonica And he had seen people believe. But Paul didn't have the conviction of their growth that we see in 1 Thessalonians 1 until several months later when he sent Timothy to check on whether or not they had progressed. And it wasn't until Timothy came back and said they have persevered that Paul says, hallelujah. I'm asking myself, I'm asking of all of us, we fit that mold. Those proofs that the gospel has taken root in our lives. That over time, after salvation, we've continued to grow, that we've continued to become more Christ-like. Pray that that defines us. Pray that that defines me. That our testimonies are going forth. That what God has done in our lives is known. People are hearing, wanting to know more, and being changed. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have called us to pursue you with aggression. And we look at the testimony of the Thessalonians and I'm challenged. Look at such a young, such a, a baby church and they are pursuing you with such passion, with such aggression. I'm convicted of my own walk and Lord, I pray that we would, as a body, together be, be running, running to you, running towards Christ-likeness. We thank you so much for your word that it is completely true, that it is challenging to us, that there's an application for us to to pursue you more. God, we thank you for what I know you've done in so many of the hearts here tonight. As Paul did, I, I, I thank you for the salvation that you have brought. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.